Welcome to Neonatology Now, the official podcast of the European School of Neonatology. Here at Neonatology Now, we are shining a light on the real-world experiences of world-renowned experts in perinatal medicine. Together, we will learn from top medical doctors, researchers, and opinion leaders to better understand how we can improve professional neonatal care in Europe and beyond. It's not just about the science. It's about the stories and experiences shaping this critical field of medicine. And now, without further ado, let me introduce you to your host, a seasoned neonatologist and our guide through these fascinating conversations, Professor Mario Ruther. Mario, take it away. Welcome to the first episode of Neonatology Now, the podcast of the European School of Neonatology. I'm Professor Rüdiger, and my first guest is Professor Willem de Bode, President of the ESPR. It is my great pleasure to welcome the current President of the ESPR as my first guest for Neonatology Now, Professor Willem de Bode. Willem, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, Mario, for inviting me to join this podcast. I'm really honored. It's a pleasure. Today we will have about 45 minutes to discuss the relevance and need for treatment of the open duct. A very fascinating topic. However, before we get into details, I would like to briefly introduce my guest. Willem, you were born in 1966 and you have studied medicine at the Free University of Amsterdam. You obtained your PhD in 2010 on research into advanced techniques to monitor blood circulation of newborns. And you have been appointed professor of neonatology at Redbird University in 2019. You have chaired the ESPR in the past, the special interest group neonatologists performed echocardiography, and you have been now elected president of the ESPR in Rome in 2023. What have I forgotten in my introduction that is still important to you? Um, well, you've mentioned a lot, and, and I always think you've got a professional life and also a personal life. Personal life is very important to me, so I would also like to say that uh, I'm a father of four children oh. and uh, happily married to Alan, and uh, that's really important uh, to me. So uh, both lives, personal and professional, are very important. That's very good. And that's just I wanted to. Yes, add. that's very good. I have <laughs> yeah. two daughters as well, and yeah. Ah. So never a dull moment with the children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Do you have any, um, ex uh, other than this introduction, do you have any experience that you, or any story that you would like to share with our listeners, something exceptional you want to share with our listeners? Um, well, some personal thing is that um, I've been seriously ill and it has been already um, 20, 25 years ago. But that really taught me something that's, that's, important for my professional life um, because I've been taught by this experience how important mm. it is to have a very trustful relationship with your treating physician. Um, uh, I, I've cured from cancer and I'm very thankful to, to my, my physician. But I think the best part of our profession is our relationship with the, the family of our parents. And what I've learned is how important it is to 
really trust your mm. physician and to to know that he or she is the one you can ask everything and he will guide you through the the, the travel of hopefully a recovery um that's what i really like about my my job um it's the discussion with the family of our, our of our patients um I liked the challenge of trying to tailor my conversations with the family according to their needs. Some yeah. parents want to know every detail with two decimals uh, and others, they don't want to know and just want to know, is it okay or not? And that's what I really like about my job. And it's, it's learned me a lot. That's how important a, that's that is. a very interesting yeah. story because it's always important to be on the other side um, as a patient and yeah. to see this uh, perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it, well, it taught uh, me a lot. <laughs> but how did you come to deal with echocardiography and neonatology? And how long have you been involved with this topic? Well, I've been interested in hemodynamic monitoring for a long time, and it started when I did my training, and I always wanted to be a neonatologist. Okay. And I tried to get my training in specific areas. So I did also some uh, trainership on the adult and the pediatric intensive care. And there, yeah, I saw a lot of hemodynamic monitoring I was not used mm -hmm. on to see on the neonatal intensive care. And I was really intrigued by that. Um, I saw adult patients with Swan-Ganz catheter, pulmonary yeah. artery catheters, with continuous cardiac output monitoring. And I thought by myself, wow, why don't we do this in neonatology? And in the ward I worked, there was hardly any attention for hemodynamics. It's just measuring blood Uh, pressure mm -hmm. and heart rate, but it was all focused on uh, respiration. It was focused on cerebral function. Uh, so that's why I got intrigued by hemodynamics. I started to find out how would it be possible to measure cardiac output in a preterm infant. And there are a lot of technologies um, available in larger patients, but in most the preterm patients, most technologies are not mm. feasible. Um, so I worked on that, but similar, I, I was frustrated in during my calls during the night. I did see that the patients were not recovering as I wanted or are deteriorating. I, I didn't understand mm. it. I And I wanted to know what is happening, what's the function of the heart. And then I had to call the pediatric cardiologist. And they're not happy to if you call them during the night. And of course, they will come. But if you want to have a serial echo, that's really uh, problematic. And I fully understand that. But that's why I thought, well, why not try to do the echocardiography myself? So I trained myself and then... I was trained also by an echo technician in our institution and a pediatric cardiologist every Friday afternoon. I, I got the training and I trained myself using videos, etc. And that learned me a lot and it helped me a lot in my daily practice and it gave me so much information. So that's why I also started a special interest group within okay. The circulation section yeah. of the ESPR, it's on neonatologist performed echocardiography. Um, and yeah, that's 
already started a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, I was a secretary of the, uh, the circulation section starting in 2016, and I, I started the NPE, the New Neutology Performed Echocardiography Special Interest Group. Um, and we just, I, I just discussed with a lot of, a lot of other, um, many other colleagues also interested in this. And we tried to find the best way how to organize this because I had this experience in a lot of others and we thought, well, we, this should be more unif be in a uniform way and it must be mm -hmm. possible. So what we decided is we would write uh, some review papers and that's what we did. We had a consensus of review papers, published a series, uh, but that's nice. And then you got the, 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 the papers are hard to do it, but the next step yeah. is okay, but now how are we going to how how to yeah, train yeah, how yeah. to safeguard the quality yeah. because that's what we want. So that's what we're working on right now. It's uh, uh, getting a governance structure in Europe mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. training and accreditation certification in neonatologists performed echocardiography. And I'm very grateful that within the ESPR. We had the opportunity to 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 start working on that. We're working on it now, and and now we're starting to organize in the next year, so in 2024, with courses that are going to be organized by the ESPR, certified by the ESPR, and we've got several type mm -hmm. of, of courses: <clears throat> introductory course, but also basic courses yeah. and advanced courses. Okay, um, and that's what we go to roll out in the in the coming year. That's very interesting. That was the commercial part as well for the podcast. But I'm always very much surprised going to the uh, intensive adult intensive care unit to see how much technique is available there and how little can be used in preterm or in term babies. And that's always yeah, a big surprise to me. But today we want to talk about the Benedictus trial in much more detail. Uh, that has been published in March 2023, I guess, in New England Journal of Medicine. Actually, I, when did you start planning it? Because it's a very elegant yeah. trial, uh, but how, um, how, is, uh, how, how much time did you spend to plan it and to, until you have started it? That has been a long <laughs> time. I, I just, um, we started the first discussion about doing a trial in 2013. Okay. And, and it was within the Dutch working group on uh, neonatal hemodynamics with just four of us. And then we tried to get the interest from other centers and also our Belgian colleagues. And, well, it took a while. And um, the first patient was recruited in December 2019. Okay. I think it was. So um, that's more than it, it took a yeah, real. That's more than ten years ago when you started to think about. Can you can you tell yeah. our listeners just a bit what the situation was like in this time? Because I think already many things have changed with regard to the duct in the last ten years. Yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> there's already a debate uh, for for more than 60 yeah. years about what's the yeah, optimal yeah. management or the best strategy and especially the preterm extreme preterm so less than 28 weeks or less than 1500 grams um at that time it was merely 
treating. Um, the, the, the thought was the, the patent duct is a causal mm -hmm. factor of many um, serious um, morbidities like bronchopulmonary dysplasia, necrotizing enterocolitis, cerebral injury, pulmonary hemorrhage. So the logic process would be if the patent duct is causing the problems and the mortality, then we should treat it. And you can treat it. We already learned about that uh, by giving uh, indomethacin or mm -hmm. ibuprofen and more recently paracetamol. Um, however, and that, that was triggering us, is that what we see in a lot of trials, it was successful in closing the duct, <laughs> but there was no improvement yeah. in the outcome yeah. of the patients. And so during that time, there was some change in policies and strategy and transitioning to a more expectant management. But if you really look at all, this, all the, 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 the randomized controlled trials in those times that have been performed, and we looked into that and we did a systematic review, then it's right that the patent duct closes, but there's no improvement in outcome or mortality. But looking at the control arm, it's either placebo or non-treatment, so the control arm, in a, most of the studies, there was an open-label treatment in that control arm because the dogma was a patent duct is not good. So after two weeks, three weeks, they did <laughs> they did treat it eventually. So it's not comparing treatment versus no treatment. It was treatment versus later treatment. So the transitioning to a more expected management, well, the, 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 the proof for that, for safety, was very scarce. And, well, we didn't really have the evidence for that. And that's what made us decide. So we should try to design a trial with treatment versus really no treatment at all. So no open-label treatment in the expectant management arm. And we had a lot of discussion about that because... Normally, the highest level of evidence is seen in placebo-controlled mm -hmm. trials, but we deliberately didn't want to do a placebo-controlled trial. But we, because if you give a placebo and the course of the patient is not satisfactory, I think a lot of physicians are really, um, um, they do have problems in, well, maybe the patient is getting the placebo, so shouldn't I stop it and just give the treatment? So, and that's what happened to all the other randomized control trials, and we thought we should repeat that. So what we tried to do is to randomize the intention of the, of the physicians, so the, 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 the treating physicians, mm -hmm. the staff. So, yes, you know the patient's got a patent duct, but your randomized your strategy either the patent duct might be a causal factor mm -hmm. or no the patent duct is not the causal factor but it is a marker of the immaturity of the patient it's not the patent duct that causes the necrotizing enterocolitis the pulmonary hemorrhage or the cerebral injury it is related to the immaturity if you're extreme if you're born extremely preterm then you've got an increased risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, necrotizing enterocolitis, etc. But also an increased risk of a patency of mm -hmm. the duct. But that doesn't mean that the patency is causing all those morbidities. So 
when you're doing rounds and you have two similar patients, not related, same gestational age, same weight, right. same uh, uh, history, the first patient you say, okay, we've, we know we got a duct, we have to treat it because we think it's a causal, but going to the next patient, okay, we know we have a duct, but uh, we think it's a marker of immaturity, we shouldn't treat it. And it was successful because in this trial, only one patient in the expectant management arm was treated. So that means a open label percentage of 0.7. And in comparison, the median open label treatment in all the RCTs that have been before, performed earlier was around 50, mm. 50%. So at last, we could really compare treatment versus no treatment at all. Yeah. yeah, that was, I think, very important because that has fascinated me. When I started neonatology, it was said, the doctors causes BPD, the doctors causes IVH. And then you were expecting, okay, if I treat it, then I don't have any BPD anymore and so on. Um, but we, we learned quite a lot. And there was this publication very recently from the South Korean group Uh, concerning the natural cause of, of the open duct in preterm babies. And they have shown if you don't do anything, it's up to three to four weeks that the ductus needs time to close. And that's a bit yeah. in accordance to your data, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because um, um, if I'm allowed to, 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 to tell about the results of the, uh, the, the, the better yeah, ductus trial, sure. because we, we, we were really surprised because... We did a non-inferiority mm -hmm. trial. And what we thought, what we expected, is that we could show non-inferiority. So either you treat or not treat, there's no real difference. And uh, so that might prove, uh, provide the evidence that it's safe to do expectant management. But to our surprise, we did see a remarkable difference between the two study groups with a higher incidence in the primary outcome in the treated group. Um, and the primary outcome was a composite outcome of BPD, moderate or severe, mortality, and or neck, necrotizing mm -hmm. enterocolitis. Um, and that was a difference of 17% mm -hmm. uh, in incidence between expectant and the treated group, the ibuprofen treated group. And if we look at the, if we looked at the components of the composite outcome, it was all related to a higher incidence of bronchopulmonary mm -hmm. dysplasia in the ibuprofen-treated group, and that we didn't expect. Yeah. So that really was, and, and you can't say in design if it's a non-inferiority trial uh, that um, uh, expected management is superior. No, you can only say it's non-inferior. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the 95 confidence interval and the, the, the right margin, it's even, um, it's uh, by heart minus seven. Uh, no, it's, it, it's at the superior level. But that depends if you're a statistician or you're a clinician, yeah. whether you just. But yeah, it shows us that probably it's not. I, I was surprised to see that. Treating patients with ibuprofen increases the incidence of um, of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and there was also a striking difference between male and female mm -hmm. patients, especially yeah. the male patients 
that were exposed to ibuprofen had a very high incidence in the primary outcome. That's amazing. There's yeah. more evidence rising that there's really a sex difference between uh, uh, in yeah. this several yeah. aspects we already knew in the past. Some boys are doing worse than girls, but but I was surprised to see this one in your study as well. And yeah. but do you, do you have any explanation? We have to look. Yeah. At, do you do you have any idea or any theory about this? No, I think it's really important to have more attention for the sex differences. It's not only in yep. neonatology, but we just learned that also in in medicine, everything is based on male <laughs> disorders, male physiology. So that's not good. We should pay more attention that male, male patients are not the same as female and vice versa. And um, we know that preterm infants, female preterm infants have better outcome than in mm. general, and then uh, a male patient. So, so there are so many um, aspects. Is it the way the um, uh, balance between pro-inflammatory and um, uh, anti-inflammatory uh, uh, factors mm. are um, uh, influenced? Is it genetic? It, it, I think it's multifactorial, and it's very hard to tease out what is exactly causing this sex difference i don't know hmm. but i think well for me it made me really doubt if there's a patient a male patient with a really severe um uh, uh, lung injury but also a patent duct is it really um the best thing to do to give ibuprofen mm -hmm. i'm not sure because we thought about why do we have a higher incidence in BPD yeah. in the ibuprofen exposed population, and we we digged into the literature, and there are several studies showing the association between ibuprofen and uh, uh, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And of course, okay. we always thought, yeah, well, that that's not strange because you give ibuprofen because of the PDA. Yeah, and the PDA yeah, yeah, is yeah. causing the the, but it seems that it's not related to the. Be, uh, a patent duct, but a direct relationship. And if you look into more fundamental research in zebrafish, uh, in other animal models, um, you do see an effect of ibuprofen on angiogenic factors. And more recently, in a um, Chinese study, they looked at different angiogenic factors before and after administration of ibuprofen, mm -hmm. you do see a decrease in the angiogenic factors. Really? So the, the theory is, I think ibuprofen is, is, um, is influencing pulmonary angiogenesis. Wow. And maybe that's why there's a higher incident in bronchopulmonary dysplasia. I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. And, and well, and that's what's intriguing me because um, we think when we look into a specific disease, a PDA in a preterm infant, we we learn that well, the patent duct stays patent because of prostaglandins. Mm -hmm. So it's very logic. You've got a pathway. You can sure. inhibit the th synthesis of prostaglandins, and for that you can give cyclooxygenase inhibition like indomethacin or ibuprofen or peroxidase inhibition, and that's paracetamol. And that sounds logic, and it, it works, the, the duct closed. However, 
we never taken into account many other processes mm -hmm. in the body that also involve the synthesis of uh, of prostaglandins that we also inhibit. So this is a side effect we probably could have known but never paid attention to. So it's also the same. I think ibuprofen and imethacine are on the same level, but more recently people are more transitioning to uh, prescribing paracetamol because probably it's not as um, uh, toxic or has less okay. adverse effects. But in the end, it's the same yeah. cascade. It's more downstream. And I'm not sure whether it's as safe. So we have to dig into that okay. also. Is there any data concerning the angiogenesis effect of paracetamol? Yes, there is. There, uh, I found one or two studies. I can't give you the, the yeah. exact reference by heart. I can have to look into it. But there is a, 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 a also influence of paracetamol on the increase in lung injury, okay. especially vascular. Okay. Yeah. So I think one one big yeah. problem in neonatology concerning bronchopulmonary dysplasia is that we don't have a very good animal model. All the animal models we are using for BPD are mainly in mature babies or mature um, animals, uh, which are animals. exposed to hyperoxia, but they are expo expected to be in hyperoxia or in, in normoxia at least. And so the animal model is not very good. There's no good chance to study. Uh, no, but no, but no, exactly. coming yeah. back to the... But, uh, well, just one comment on, on the animal studies, because... Um, um, Kleiman, Ron yeah. Kleiman has done a lot of baboon experiments and what they've shown is that with treating the ducts, the alveolar alveolarization is improved. And that's true, but however, the angiogenesis is inhibited. And that's what also has been proved by the influence of uh, ibuprofen so, and, and endomethacin. So maybe it improves the alveolarization. However, the effect of the angiogenesis is not beneficial. Okay. That has That's been found in, in yeah, animal yeah. experiments. Yeah. So actually talking about Ron Kleiman, he is doing the PDA tolerate trial. Um, so he, yeah. he is using quite a different approach. He is using late treatment uh, versus expectant uh, um, treatment. Um, um, so he, he is not, he is different from your study, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's quite different because they, the, dif the difficulty in the PDA tolerance trial was that there were issues with the clinical equipoise mm -hmm. within the, 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 uh, the medical yeah. staff. A lot of patients were not recruit recruited because the clinicians were not in equipoise. So there is a selection bias in these, uh, in this, uh, in this study for uh, recruiting uh, the patients. Um, I think. And it's also very interesting because a uh, the, the the pivotal trial that's now being done in in North America, um, uh, and it, it's trying to see if transcatheter closure yeah, yeah, is yeah, better than. The, but however, the transcatheter closure only starts after a failed pharmaceutical attempt to close. So, if it's true that ibuprofen might influence the angiogenesis and might increase the risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia, then this would probably, you've still got the adverse effects of the, because um, 
that might be very difficult in distance. For, for me, I, I do think there are three options if a patient have a patent duct and you give ibuprofen. Hmm. If you got a successful ductal closure, then that's beneficial for the patient. However, if you give ibuprofen, uh, uh, ibuprofen and it fails to close the duct, then you've got the adverse potential effects of the ibuprofen. You've got the prolonged exposure to the patent duct, and those are probably the patients that are um, the, with the highest risk of adverse effects. Mm. And then in between, there are the patients with partially closure of the duct or reopening of the duct, and that depends on the balance between the time of exposure to the patent duct and the potential adverse yeah. effects of the medication, and that depends. So. What I really would like, and that's what we're thinking, because we always have to think about new trials, what would be interesting, but I'm not sure whether we are there yet, is to have the Benedictus trial, but then expected management versus early transcatheter closure. Okay. But then you have to be sure that, that transcatheter closure is safe. safe. Yeah, yeah. And it can be done early. And uh, I, I think we're getting there. Um, so I think then you could really mm. differentiate between mm. treating and non-treatment without the pharmaceutical potential adverse mm. effects. But you were already talking about the equipoise. I, I think that's being a clinician, that's a very difficult topic. Having a patient, I, I think we agree that there should, need, should not be any prophylactic treatment anymore nowadays. Um, but if you have a patient, um, he was nice and got on ventilator after two weeks and then you cannot wean them from the ventilator and then you have an open duct. So it's very hard to, to stay and to say, oh, we just wait because Benedict showed there's no benefit. Uh, so what should we do? Yeah, that's, well, that was the biggest mm -hmm. challenge during uh, the, the Benedictus trial. I, I, I I was available for a phone call 24-7, <laughs> and whenever uh, people wanted to give open label, um, we could discuss this. Um, and it took a while. It's very hard to have everyone in clinical equipoise. And we said if the, the staff is not in clinical equipoise, mm. then you can't join the um, Pedantoctus trial because then Definitely, we will yeah, yeah. have the same errors and, and faults that have been done already and we have hope of high open label uh, uh, treatment. Uh, but we were successful. I, many centers I visited several times mm -hmm. just to, to, to uh, get them convinced. And we learned that in some patients we were, they were really sure this was the duct. It, 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 they were really sure and we said, okay, check it. There was no duct, and vice versa, <laughs> with, a, with a perfect um, uh, uh, clinical cause, and there were patients with a large duct. So it, it, we really believe there's still a lot of dogmas in, in neonatology, mm -hmm. and it's difficult. However, I'm sure there's a selected population of patients with a patent duct that need treating, that need treatment, and that's our aim to find out which, because still from a pathophysiologic point of view, it's really strange that a high transductal shunt with pulmonary hyperperfusion at the cost of a systemic hypoperfusion would be beneficial. I, I, I can't believe that. However, I think right now the treatment with ibuprofen is probably worse than 
the original condition. So it would be nice if we can individualize this and to try to select those patients with a high transductal vol uh, uh, shunt volume, so a hemodynamic significant PDA, try to find them and find the best treatment for those individuals. Because you're right, some patients, but it's a minority in my opinion, but there's also a difference between regions. If we compare our patient population with the North American, yeah, it's quite yeah. different. They have a incidence of ventilating at the end of the first and beginning of the second week of 60-70%. Well, in our yeah, yeah, center, yeah. it's around 10-15%. So, quite a different approach, quite different mm -hmm. population. So, that's always the difficulty. But I do agree that also we now and then have the patient with a very high shunt volume on the ventilator. And in that case, we don't treat with ibuprofen anymore, but we would we, we transfer for a transcatheter closure. Okay. Yeah. So, but, but again, you mentioned the hemodynamic significant shunt. That's an argument we had for, yeah. for more than 20 years now. <laughs> and it has changed over the time. Yeah. What does it mean, hemodynamic relevance? So, is it just the measure yeah. in the heart, the AOLA ratio, yeah. or is it the uh, perfusion in the periphery or so? You, as a specialist in echocardiography, what, what would you suggest being? Significant hemodynamic. Well, I think th this is the most <laughs> this is the most difficult part. We can spend a yeah. day on deliberating what what is a hemodynamic significant patent duct. I think the de definition is that it is a patent duct with a high shunt mm -hmm. volume. Unfortunately, we can't measure in milliliters per minute or milliliters per kilogram per minute what's the left to right shunt volume over the patent duct. So we have to look at indicators. I think the most important indicators that show the highest relevance is um, a pulsatile transductal uh, flow pattern and a, mm, a retrograde uh, diastolic flow in the descending Indeed, order. Yeah. And those two, if that's in, in if those two. Um, signs are, are, are present, you probably have a very high shunt uh, volume. I think what's really um, interesting is to have a look at the, the, the newest PDA severity score. Professor El Kufash, uh, Professor McNamara, um, also now from Iowa, where he's, uh, he's uh, now, um, they have different scoring mm -hmm. systems trying to address this issue. And I think That's the way forward to try to select those patients with the highest risk of a patent duct, highest risk of failure of mm -hmm. closure. And then, again, if that's a phenotype, highest risk of failure to close, and then also exposing them to potential adverse effects of the ibuprofen or paracetamol, maybe that's not the way to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that would be nice to find That's out. It's interesting, the these two different aspects, the hemodynamic significance and the danger of treatment. And as far as I know, these yeah. these um, severity scores have not been tested yet in for treatment, isn't it? It's just the likelihood of spontaneous closure. 
Yeah, exactly. And and the, the risk of, uh, especially the, by Professor Alkofash, they are the risk of BPD and or mm. death. If you have PDA security okay. score over five, uh, it's a high predictive value of uh, BPD and or mortality. But, but again, is that related to the PDA or is yeah, it related yeah. to the immaturity of that specific patient? That's always yeah. difficult to to distinguish. Yeah. Okay. So in our practice, we also look very much like on the end organ perfusion. That's for me the most important yeah. aspect. If you have negative flow or a reverse flow, so then it's it should have some relevance. Yeah, <laughs> I I do think so, but not only the duct is causing retrograde diastolic okay. flow in different end organs. Uh, you can have a low systemic vascular resistance yeah, yeah, okay. in other yeah, regions, yeah. and so. And and but this is also something we always relate to um, to a patent duct. Um, you can see a absent or retrograde uh, cerebral diastolic mm -hmm. blood flow, or even in patients with a closed duct. Mm. Um, we've seen it, um, so it's not indicative uh, with a high predictive value. It's associated with, and it's very interesting because two centers. That participated in the Better Doctors trial, they also uh, have a standard uh, neuromonitoring with near infrared okay. spectroscopy. So, and those patients, we are now evaluating what's the difference in the two groups, the expectant management and the ibuprofen treated group, regarding the cerebral oxygenation and perfusion. And I'm really looking forward to see the results of that because that could also learn us a lot. Okay. That's interesting. So you already pointed out what you would love to do in your next Benedictus uh, trial to use the um, transcatheter closure. Um, do you have any uh, plans really to start this one or any other research steps in between? Yeah, we're we're starting with the discussions about a, um, a Benedictus trial. 2.0 with a transcatheter okay. closure as an early intervention. Um, and um, we're working on that, but yeah. that <laughs> takes time. to be honest, to, to design and to, um, and to, 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 to do a uh, trial in neonatal intensive care is really yeah. challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not as easy. And, um, And we're still working also on the follow-up data mm -hmm. and the two-year yeah, uh, corrected age of the of the. And until now, the interim analysis shows no real difference between those two. But we haven't uh, have the analysis of all patients. Um, we're going to do a sub-analysis of the patients, as I just told about, with the high severity score. Mm -hmm. So with the real high transductor shunt volume and to. To, to, to compare between the treated and the non-treated uh, arm, what's the difference in that uh, selected group? I, I'm really looking forward to, to learn from that because that would probably say us it doesn't matter whether you have a high or, or not high transactional shunt or should we really try to pick out those patients with the highest probability of non-closure with a high transductal shunt? But then again, the discussion how to treat. Okay, um, and 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 there are two other research uh, projects not related to the the Benedict trial that I'm working on. Um, we have a very large consortium um, uh, of all 
university medical centers in the in the Netherlands with three technical university and we're trying to work on a perinatal life support system it's like the artificial womb and that's what we try to 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 work on right. because it's not trying to to change the 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 uh, limit of viability but try to prevent a transition from fetal physiology to neonatal mm -hmm. physiology, being exposed to oxygen, being exposed to air, etc. So instead of being born at 24, 25 weeks, but to postpone that for four weeks, three year, three weeks, four weeks, and hopefully with less incidence of yep. proctopomodal dysplasia and other neonatal morbidities. Yeah, that will be another fascinating oh, story, I guess, we, yeah. we have our next uh, podcast yeah. about, because that's an amazing, yeah, yeah. amazing yeah. Uh, issue. And so the uh, it was very similar in Philadelphia, the group that are working on it. And so that's amazing. And, yeah. But yeah we, yeah, we should keep yeah. it for the next podcast. <laughs> but what, what, yeah, one question, there is some data uh, have been reported that the morphology of the preterm duct is very different. Um, did you did you have any data from the Benedictus try to look at the morphology of the um, ductus? So the, the um, um, hockey stick not, uh, not yet. Uh, shape and so? Yeah. Not yet. We're working on that okay. right now because... There are two new PhD candidates working all the, on all the data of the Benedictus uh, trial. One of them is a pediatric cardiologist okay. working at our institution. And from the majority of all patients um, randomized within the Benedictus trial, we do have um, uh, echocardiograms. And uh, she's going to review yeah, all that. And we're going to have a look at that because that will be very uh, interesting uh, uh, to learn. Okay. Yeah. So... Coming to the end, having my, uh, some clinicians as listener for our podcast, um, if you if you should summarize the available evidence by now, what should we recommend to clinicians today with regard to the treatment or not treatment of the open duct? Yeah. Um, well, right now we discuss in uh, our country in the Netherlands and we we adapted the uh, national recommendations uh, for preterm extreme preterm infants with a patent duct um, we don't screen we don't treat uh, preterm infants uh, with a high uh, above 28 weeks um, we learned from the Benedictus trial and that's why we don't screen within the first week mm -hmm. of life because we've shown that um, expectant management is non-inferior non to treatment in uh, early treatment. Um, if, well, and it's safe to do. Mm -hmm. uh, we even see less incidence of, of uh, BPD. Um, in, in those patients after the first week of life, as you just um, also mentioned, that's on the ventilator and you don't, uh, you, you, the course of the patient is not beneficial and compatible with the PDA, we screen and then decide based upon how high, high do we estimate the transductor shunt volume, whether or not to refer for um, transcatheter closure. Okay. Um, 
We're, we're very reluctant with prescribing um, uh, cyclooxygenase inhibition, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. ibuprofen or inomethacin, and, and we, we've never used paracetamol in our institution, okay. but a lot of other institutions yeah. in that do for a closure of the of the patent duct. I, I'm not sure whether it, it's safe. I, we, I think we need more data. And so, what, what is the lowest? So no, no standard screening. Okay, yeah, that's that's very important. Yeah. I think. And but what is the lowest weight for trans um, catheter closure? Officially, by the firm that delivers the the device, it's seven hundred grams. Okay. But from reports from North America, they've done it already in four hundred fifty yeah, yeah, grams. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was very interesting. And one final question at the end of our podcast, more a private question. Based on your experience, being president of the ESPR, having a lot of experience in neonatology, do you have any recommendation for students who are at the beginning of their career, what you would like to suggest them? Yeah, um, I think always stay curious and always dare to keep asking questions. I think that's the best. And assume nothing for certain. Um, and. Um, there are many dogmas in neonatology, and, and <laughs> I've learned a lot that people say, oh, well, I know this is how we should do it, and, and well, always be suspicious and always try to question, um, and, and then the last um, advice, um, to be honest, there's only one priority, and that's your personal and your family life. Um, uh, I really like my my profession, and I'm when I'm in the hospital, I give the full hundred percent. However, if I'm needed at home, that's my priority. And I think we also always have to be very cautious about the balance between private and uh, professional life. That's an excellent final word, William. Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank yeah? you. Thank you again for having me. That was the first episode of Neonatology Now, the podcast of the European School of Neonatology. Mario Rüdiger on the mic, and my first guest today, Willem de Bode, president of the ESPR.